to hearing from the Word again, and I want to welcome you all and share with you a text from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to hear in just a few moments of how God uses His church and how God commissions His church. I want you to hear these words from 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're here tonight to boast in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let me pray as we begin. Lord, thank you so much for another chance to gather as your people. Thank you for, Lord, just the grace to sing songs of truth. Thank you, O Lord, that you are the church's one foundation. Thank you, O God, that you have chosen to make known the gospel to the world. Thank you, O God, that you have saved us. Lord, as we heard last night, you have formed us into a church. You've given us a commission. We're going to hear again tonight. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, be honored as we worship you through song and through the word and through prayer. Lord, we pray all of these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Oh, hold on. Wait just one second. We'll get it in just a minute. Hey, there we are. Awesome. All right, let's stand and continue in our worship this evening. Jesus. 
I've got a new song that I want to introduce to you. Hmm. And I want to sing the first, I guess chorus is what it is because there are no verses. So sing the first chorus and then I want us to read out of Hebrews chapter 4 and the words will be on the screen when we get there. And then I want you to sing along with me through the rest of the song. sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's sing that first verse again. Christ the sure and steady anchor in the He is there for us. 
part acapella Christ the shore of our salvation ever faithful ever true we will hold fast to the anchor it shall never be removed Amen Amen Lord thank you so much for your sure and steady anchor, Lord, that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, to redeem us, to welcome us into your family, to adopt us as sons and daughters into your kingdom. Lord, to grant us eternal life where we will spend eternity with you, forever seeing your face, forever witnessing your glory, forever praising your name. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask these things in your name. Amen. 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 Ready? Now. Thank you for that. And church, thank you for singing. It's a, it's a blessing to, there's two benefits from sitting up front on, at least at Westwood, I'll speak for this, okay? And one of those benefits is that you don't see everybody getting up behind you and moving around. I mean, and if you sit on the back row, you might understand what I'm talking about. Um, We have bladder problems at Westwood, evidently, (laughs) because I don't understand it. I mean, it's just, so you miss that if you sit at the front. You don't see all those people getting up and leaving. But the other thing is you get to hear the saints singing, and what a blessing that is to to hear you singing in worship. Thank you for doing that. Um, I ran into... um, Brother Ben Durand, he's the pastor at North Roxborough. I ran into him just a few minutes ago uh, on my way out here. And he, um, he said, what are you preaching tonight? And I said, well, I'm preaching Acts 2, 3, 4, and 5. And he looked at me kind of strange, like 
preachers will look at each other like, are you an idiot? Um, and I said, well, not really all of that, but um, I kind of feel like my dad used to take us to the, the cafeteria. It was K&W cafeteria when I was growing up. Some of you might remember that. It was a big deal for a kid from Boone to go to K&W cafeteria because we didn't have one in Boone, so that meant we were someplace else. But I always got more on my plate, on my tray, than I could, could manage to eat. And Dad always fussed at me about, you know, having eyes bigger than my stomach. Um, well, I promise you, we're not going to do that tonight. I haven't loaded the plate up with more than, than we can do. We're going to kind of do a flyover on this as we look. And, and you see on the screen where we're going tonight. We talked last night about a spirit, how the spirit came at Pentecost and, and filled his people. And that church was born there in Jerusalem. Remember, we, we related it back to how God birthed this church here, Theresa Baptist Church, 86 years ago. And the same spirit the same gospel, the same power, the same story, where it's a continuation of that story. And so tonight I want us to think about these characteristics of a spirit-filled church. And we're going to see those in three specific sections of of the book of Acts as Luke kind of spells that out for us. And I can tell you where we're going to be going with this over the course of the next three nights, tonight and then tomorrow night and Wednesday night, God willing. We're going to see how the gospel is still in Jerusalem, but that's about to change. It's about to change as God literally forces that church out of its comfort zone and takes the gospel into the places where he'd intended it to go in the first place. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other other ends of the earth. So we're going to see that take place. But how how does this church that we saw birth last night, how is it that God intends for this small, at the time small, 3,000 is even relatively small in the scope of the whole world, right? We see that. How's God going to take that new organism? And it is an organism, okay? It's the body of Christ. We need to remember that. This, 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 this place here, this, this church is not an organization, church. Remember that. It's, the JCs are an organization, okay? Civic clubs are organizations. We are an organism. We are the body of Christ. He is our head. There's a vitality, a life There is the blood of the Holy Spirit flowing through us, if you will. So God's going to take that body. He's going to take the hands and feet of Jesus in his church and begin to change the world. But he's not going to do it the way we think that it might be done. I'm not a, I'm born in the mountains, born and raised in Boone. The last thing that I have is sea legs, okay? I don't do well on the water. I'm okay at Mayo or Heiko. I can do okay in a, in a, you know, a John boat or just making my way down a river, but I don't do well on the ocean. Um, not well at all. And the only times that I've been on the ocean, I really haven't seen a whole lot of it because I stayed in the bathroom. I mean, I just don't do well, but I was reading what I know about seamanship I've read. And so I was reading about the Nimitz class aircraft carriers. And that is one of the things on my bucket list is to go on an aircraft carrier and actually see it, just see it function. I don't think that would ever happen, but it's an amazing piece of machinery. And some of you may be familiar with it. It's over a thousand feet long. There's 6,000 seamen and airmen on an aircraft carrier. I mean, the United States is the country that, that formed this amazing piece of machinery, this weapon of war, and, and no one has done it like us. And they can stay out to sea indefinitely and cover as much as 800 miles in a day. It, it's, it's incredible what, what these ships are able to do. 
They can go, they can launch an aircraft off of the carrier deck going from zero to 60 in two seconds. You think your Ford's fast or whatever it is that you're driving. Zero to 160 in two seconds. It's, it's astounding. And as much of that ship is above the water, 240 some feet in, in the most current recent carriers, what's underneath the water is even more important because it's those decks under the water where the engines and where the nuclear reactors and all of that that are propelling that ship forward. As we think tonight about a spirit-filled church, the characteristics of this spirit-filled church, and we begin with this idea of faithfulness, of devotion to Christ and the things of Christ, that's the part that's underwater, if you will. That's the part that's not seen necessarily by a community or a world around us. This is this is kind of family business stuff as we start out, okay? This is, this is the engine that propels this body forward. And I want you to look in Acts chapter 2. What do you do with 3,000 new babies? Hmm? I mean, that's what they've got here in Jerusalem. They've got 3,000 new followers of Christ. And what they do is they put them in a family. They put them in this organism called the church. And we see what the Spirit of God does in and through this body of believers here in Acts chapter 2. And I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 42, okay? Acts 2, 42. And I want us to think about this characteristic of a Spirit-filled church being faithful, devoted to Jesus and the things of Christ. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all of the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved faithfulness, a deep devotion to Christ and to the things of Christ is what we see is the main part of the engine that's going to move this body, move this church, eventually out of Jerusalem and into the far reaches of the known world. And so as we look at this, what do you feed a baby? What is it that these spiritual babies are feeding on and who's responsible for their well-being who's caring for them deep devotion to christ is seen in a deep devotion to his word okay they fed they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings the apostles were the ones who were responsible for shepherding this new spiritual family the ones who were taking care of this new new body these new babies and they were devoting themselves to the apostles teaching what did they have for their bible in the book of acts Well, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels yet. And it's so important for us to recognize that this Old Testament, this first part, these promises that God is making that we see fulfilled in the New Testament, that's the inspired Word of God too. And that's what the Holy Spirit was using to raise up this spiritual body, these these new believers in Christ. And And they had these apostles who were teaching them who had, by the way, had a pretty good teacher, right? I mean, Jesus, Jesus was a pretty good teacher and he had taken them to the very same scriptures. And it says in Luke 24, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to the in the scriptures, the things concerning himself. 
So he went back to Genesis and talked about the snake crutcher and said, that's me. He went, about, he, he went through the book of Exodus and said, the Passover lamb, that's me. And just working his way through the Old Testament. And they're doing the same thing with these new believers. The word is what they were feeding. The word is their food. And that's what was being poured into these new believers. And it was the Spirit of God giving them a hunger for this word. And really it's the Spirit of God that was doing the teaching too because that's what Jesus had promised us that his Holy Spirit would do. He will guide you into all truth, Jesus said in John 16. You are blessed with a shepherd, with a pastor who loves the word of God and wants to lead you through the word of God and teach it to you. But it's the spirit of God in him and in you that will bring you to those truths and teach you. You don't need Ben to lead you through God's word. God has given us that gift. He's given us that teacher. But it is our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ to together and individually feed upon God's word. There's a lot of ways you can grow at the Reese Baptist Church numerically. You can have activities, you can have stews, you can have pig pickings, you can have all kinds of things. There's a lot of ways to grow the church numerically. There's only one way to grow the church spiritually, only one, and that is through the Word of God. And I believe through the systematic teaching of the Word of God, book by book, working your way through God's Word that way. You can grow yourself individually in a lot of ways. But the only way to grow yourself spiritually as an individual is by feeding on God's word. You can stay busy, but that's not growing. Staying in the word is how we grow. So they fed themselves. A spirit-filled church, this this church devoted to Christ, is devoted to Christ, and it's indicated by their devotion to his word. They're also devoted to one another. It says they continually devoted themselves to the fellowship. You do not find the word fellowship, koinonia, in the Gospels. This is the first time you find it in the Bible, and you will find it throughout the rest of the New Testament. But this fellowship is something that comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in these believers binds them together. And this word for koinonia, fellowship is not a feeling, church. Fellowship is not a meal, as good as those are. Fellowship is not necessarily gathering around the table, although fellowship can take place there. But fellowship is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God in a believer that binds us to one another together, okay? That's what this fellowship is. And just as the Spirit of God was poured out on them at Pentecost and the gospel was being preached in languages that they heard, the Spirit of God in you binds you to other believers. And the Spirit of God testifies with your spirits that you are children of God, and together you experience that grace in a way that it can't be done individually. It just can't. That's why these pictures of the New Testament church are so important. A body. What does a body have to have? It has to have a head. And what do those parts of the body require to stay vital, to stay alive? Connection. And so when you hear this, you know, your friend out there say, well, I, you know, I, I love Jesus. I just, I just don't believe I need to go to church. That is a lie from hell. That is not true. Lop your finger off and set it on the coffee table and see how well it does. And that's how well that sister or brother's doing apart from the body of Christ. It is a supernatural impossibility to be related to Jesus and not be connected to his body. And that's where that koinonia and that fellowship comes together. It's a supernatural work. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together said, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy 
community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Each of you have a different idea probably of what the Reese Baptist Church needs to do to be the, the church you'd want it to be. And those ideas, throw them all together, according to Bonhoeffer, will kill this place. What binds us together for the glory of God and the good of the gospel and the real supernatural change that God wants to see come about is the binding together of us, the glue of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to one another. And as you devote yourself to Christ, you know what Jesus is going to do? He's going to draw you to each other. He's going to draw you in a closer bond together with one another in the body of Christ. It's a supernatural miracle, and it is beautiful. It is, it is, a, is an amazing thing to see. So a devotion to Christ is seen in your devotion to one another. You know, let me give you one other quote from Bonhoeffer just by way of application. A Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another, or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into the countenance of a brother for whom Christ died, the face of a forgiven sinner. That's what fellowship, koinonia, this intimacy together does for us as we live together, love together, serve together, and pray for one another. You cannot hold hard feelings to someone who the Holy Spirit has bound you together to in a sacred relationship as you pray for that person through the grace of God and the same forgiveness and compassion that Jesus has showed you, those, those things begin to fall away. And you begin to see that person through the, through the face of Christ, through the bond of the Holy Spirit that he sealed in you. They devoted themselves to fellowship. Then look also that they devoted themselves, their devotion to Christ is seen in their Christ-centered worship. And you need, to, you need to pay attention to this. They continually devoted themselves, it says, to worship. And, and, and the way I see that, the way interpreters help us understand that, is, is when it says that the breaking of bread there, it's not talking about a covered dish meal. They did plenty of that too, probably. But this is talking about their, their celebration of the Lord's Supper, coming together and remembering the crucifixion, the resurrection, remembering the gospel in that physical way that Jesus called us to proclaim the gospel to one another. As often as you do this in remembrance of me, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes, Paul said. And so we preach to each other when we come around the communion table. And they did that regularly. They were devoted to that. Their, their worship was Christ-centered. It was Christ-centered. The Word of God was proclaimed. The Word of God was sung. The Word of God was prayed. The Word of God was central because that's where God has revealed himself to us. And so they devoted themselves to this Christ-centered worship, the breaking of bread, and it says to the prayers. And so these prayers that it's talking about, remember, this is a Jewish culture. We're going to see in just a minute Peter and John on their way to the tabernacle, on the way to the temple for their daily prayers. Prayers were a regular part of their culture. It was a part of how they'd been raised. But listen, when Jesus comes into your life and the Holy Spirit fills you, old prayers and old songs that before may have just been religious routine for you take on a brand new life, right? They're, they're not the same anymore. It's astounding. I grew up at First Baptist Church in Boone because I was forced to. 
I was there three times a week, whether I wanted to be or not, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. It never failed. If you were in Glen Hodges' house, there were three things that you did. You pulled for the car heels, you pulled for the Redskins, and you went to church. And you didn't have to like any of them, but you had to do them. And you know what I found that over the years, after I came to faith much later, those, song, those hymns that I didn't pay any attention to those things. And all of a sudden those words were in there and they came just rolling out of my mind and out of my lips. And guess what? They meant something. Christ-centered worship is the word of God preached, the word of God sung, the word of God prayed. And these prayers and these, these things that probably for them had been a part of their lives their whole life. And now all of a sudden Jesus has a hold of them and they take on a whole new dimension. A whole new dimension. Let me suggest that if you have a problem with worship, there's a really good chance if you look closely enough and deeply enough through the, through the, through the eyes of, of God's word, through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, you'll see that your problem is not with the songs. It's not even necessarily with the style of worship. There's a deeper issue going on there. They devoted themselves to Christ-centered worship through the breaking of bread, through the prayers, and, and this old familiarity that it may have been a part of their lives for so long all of a sudden just took on a whole new dimension, a whole new understanding. And these apostles had learned more about prayer from Jesus than they even knew at the time. And they're about to see it explode. See, it was Jesus who had reminded them in John 15. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask, he said, whatever you wish, and it will be done for you by this my Father is glorified. Later on, he'd say in John 15, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So ask whatever you wish in my Father's name. And we understand the will of God and the purposes of God and the word of God, how they direct our prayer life. But that's what devotion to Christ looks like in this spirit-filled church. Christ-centered worship, a passion for praying. And then notice what happens. Awe and wonder came on every soul. Many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all the believers were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Devotion to Christ is seen in reverence or fear and in changed lives. And this is a part of that fellowship. This is a part of the power of God in that fellowship. The fear here is just reverence. It's, it's reverence for God. It's reverence for coming into the presence of God through his word, through the Holy Spirit, through the gathering of God's people. The presence of God was evident in their lives through signs and wonders. And we struggle with that, don't we? I mean, I do. God, why don't I see that? Why don't we see you doing these amazing things today that that they seem to take for granted at times. Why don't, why don't we see that? And then I, I begin to recognize something, that we do have those around us. We, we have those around us. I, I, I told my church Sunday morning as we were preaching through Ephesians chapter 2, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, we were dead outside of Christ. If you're a Christian tonight, you are a miracle. All right? Somebody ought to amen that. You're a miracle. You were dead and you are alive. We see the evidence of God's work around us. 
It's there. Let me say it's around us and often we don't see it. But it's there for us to see. And this demonstration of changed lives and fear and reverence, it was, an, it was an amazing thing to see. And I think this is an internal thing going on here. It, sure, the ramifications of it are going out into the community. But the change that occurred in their hearts worked its way into their fellowship and into their love for one another, their fear for God, and their compassion and care for one another. And it was evident in their lives. It was rooted in that koinonia fellowship that they have. And we struggle with this. Is this talking about communism? Is this a Christian sanctified communism that we're talking about here? It says, my goodness, they, they had all their things in common. They sold their things, their possessions and belongings, and distributed the proceeds to everyone as they had need. What is it talking about there? I don't know. I don't know how they did this. I don't know the mechanics of what may have happened. And the mechanics, I don't believe, are the point. I think the point is the heart of God's people. Paul tells people, don't steal anymore. Work for a living. A man is worse than an unbeliever if he doesn't work and care for his family, Paul would say. This isn't living off of someone else in the sense that we might understand a welfare state. I don't think that's what it is at all. They're commanded not to steal. They're commanded to be honest in their business. They're commanded to be good stewards with what it is that God, put, that God puts into their possession. But here's the question. What is your perspective on those things? Is it mine and ours? Meaning yours and your family's? Or is it God's? That he's entrusted to you? To use for his glory and the building up of his kingdom as he sees fit and leads you to do that. That's the difference. That's a perspective. I believe when it says that they had all things in common, it's talking about their heart. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 8, I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Do you hear that? They were broke. They were poor. They were going through a depression. Things were tough. The coronavirus had just killed their retirement fund. Right? Somebody could amen that too. And it said, out, out of their extreme poverty, what came from that? A wealth of generosity. That makes no sense. Amen, it doesn't. That's what the Spirit of God does through the people of God when they have a kingdom perspective on their stuff and on the needs of others. And they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means, Paul says, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Ben, don't hold your breath. You haven't been here that long, I know, but it's rare that someone comes and begs, begs, please, pastor, let me, let me give this. Don't tell me no. And I'm not being facetious. That's just rare. And Paul says they were begging for the opportunity to do that. So hey, listen, I don't know the mechanics. I don't understand everything that went on in this early church, and I don't think they want us to understand the mechanics of it. The point is the Spirit of God came, and the devotion and the filling of that Spirit was, excuse me, the, fear, the filling of that Spirit in that church was seen in their devotion to Christ and to his people, and it took on practical application. They cared for one another. They loved for one another, and they were going to do what they needed to do to meet that need, okay? And people noticed when a church is filled with the Spirit of God and they're loving the people of God and they're focused on the Word of God and that Word of God is bearing fruit in their lives individually and corporately, you will not be able to keep the people away. 
Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That word generous, by the way, is, 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 it means singleness. They weren't distracted. They weren't, they weren't torn asunder in their hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Really, in the end, that's the only numbers that count. The numbers that God adds to your church. And as God adds to your church, he's not really impressed with the number of bodies in a building. He is impressed with the spirit of God in those people manifesting himself through their fellowship, through their love for Christ, through their devotion to the things of Christ. When God grows a church, he does it in extraordinary ways with very ordinary people. And that's what we see happening here. That's, that's what brings glory to him. And, and I won't get into the land. This passage is just filled with, with what we call active and imperfect tenses. And these verbs are continual kind of thing. They kept on being filled with the Spirit. They kept on walking with Christ. They kept on continually being filled with the Spirit. They kept on being joyous. And their lives were just uncluttered with the things of the world. That's, that's the focus. That's the commission that he's given us. So just reflect on that, Theresa. Just reflect on what it means to have this deep devotion to Jesus, to his word, to his people, to his church, and and the practical outflow of that in your lives. Is your love for Christ that you profess being backed up by that love for the things of Christ that he places priority on, his word and his people, his church, and that active and just pouring out yourself on behalf of each other? Second thing I want you to see is this spirit-filled church is marked by boldness. It's marked by boldness. Turn over to Acts chapter 3. I mentioned Peter and John going to their regular prayer time that was a part of what they were as they grew up good little Jewish boys. Now they're completed Jews in the full sense of the word. They're still going to the temple at the hour of prayer. But look, look at Acts chapter 3. This is one of my favorite, favorite parts of Acts. I love this account. A spirit-filled church is marked by boldness. And I want you to think about boldness in our actions and boldness in the way that we proclaim. Boldness in what we do and boldness in what we say. And there's just a fearlessness on the part of these men and on the part of this church. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate at the temple, which is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. And seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. And he said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I love the understatements of the Bible. Understatements. You know, they were filled with wonder and amazement. You think maybe they were? 
Filled with wonder and amazement. I thought about that last night. I just didn't say it. The angel asked the disciples, why are you looking up into heaven? Well, duh, why do you think we're looking up into heaven? Jesus was just lifted up slowly before our eyes and taken up into heaven. What else would we look at? The Bible's filled with these understatements. And here's one of them. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. What was the focus? What was the foundation of the gospel that we saw last night that they proclaimed? It was the resurrection. The resurrection and exaltation of Christ. It's the same tonight. That's the same foundation to their boldness. The resurrection is the foundation of their boldness. And, we, and, and when they see and understand and live in the reality of that boldness, it changes everything. And that boldness is first seen in Peter and John's willingness to minister to someone that I don't, I, I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to imagine he had thousands of people walk by him every day. Every day they walked by him. And most never saw him because most never looked. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit filling us with the love and compassion of Christ causes us to do is to see things that lots of people would never see. And see people that a lot of people would never see. And then be willing to reach out a hand to them that most people would never be willing to reach a hand out to. And we see Peter and John here. And this resurrection has made them bold, not just, not just in the way they're living, but the way they're loving. Bold to love and to serve others. And it's interesting because the words that are interchanged here about how he was healed and later on we'll see Peter using these same words about, it's the same word for healing and saving that's used interchangeably here through a portion of this passage of scripture. The same Jesus that comes to save comes to heal. The same Jesus that comes to heal physically comes to save spiritually. They're interconnected here. And the resurrection makes them bold to share that. And Peter and John are on their way to church. They Maybe they're running late. I don't know. Maybe. I don't. But they pause and stop. And I just love this. The beautiful gate of the temple was, they say, just an amazing bronze, ornate, just, just astounding, breathtaking in its beauty. And outside, sitting on the street, outside this beautiful gate, is just a beggar. Wearing, I guess, what beggars wear. I don't know, maybe like some of the guys we see in Durham standing at the stoplights. Maybe, maybe like some of the ladies that are there. You know, we drive by them all the time. Have you ever noticed what they're wearing? Or not, ever even looked? Sometimes I don't. Just, just go right on by. But they reach out and they extend to the, he says, look at me. I love this. Peter says, look at us. Look at us. And then he reaches out a hand to him and, and lifts him up. Here's one thing that I do know about a gospel that begins to change a community. It changes the people so that now we're willing to get our hands dirty. We're willing to reach out and touch those that the culture might say are untouchable. We're willing to reach out and spend some time with those that culture and people around us would say, yeah, it's just not my type. Just not my type. And, and we see Peter and John here through the power of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, come and just minister to this man, just extending love to him, and then proclaiming the name of Jesus by faith in his name. This man is made strong, he says. So read on ahead. Just skip on ahead a little bit. In Acts chapter 3, look at verse, starting in verse 13. What happens here? As the people begin to wonder, what in the world's going on? Well, Peter's ready to give them an answer. How is it that this man's life has been changed? What has happened? 
Peter says in verse 13, his name, by faith in his name, talking about Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So don't miss this. The power of the risen Christ begins to change lives. And as that begins to happen, people are going to take notice. They're going to notice the change in this guy that they've known all these years that lived over here. They're going to notice that his life is different. They're going to notice his priorities and, his, and, his, and everything about him is different. And, and people are beginning to amaze and they're going to ask questions. And as they begin to ask those questions, Peter demonstrates for us that those opportunities that come to give an answer are an opportunity to give a witness. And Peter doesn't miss that. All those are asking, what happened to this guy? And Peter says, let's back up for a second and look at your own hearts. And as he's presenting this message, this answer to why this man all of a sudden is walking, he gives them a gospel invitation. He gives them the gospel and calls for a decision. Look at verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that, that, he, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter, in the end there, is just pointing them back to the promises of the prophets. Then he's pointing them to the fact that he has just witnessed this Christ being ascended back up into heaven And God has promised to give him to you, Peter says. So here's a question, church. How many people do you know that could use some refreshing and some forgiveness? Some forgiveness and some refreshing. I love that. I love the way Peter phrases that. Repent. Turn from your sins, he says. That your sins might be blotted out. And that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Just looking at the way you're responding tonight, just looking at the way you're listening and interacting with me, and I really appreciate that. I, I kind of sense that most of you have, have put your faith and trust in Jesus. You're a brother or sister in Christ. I just sense that from many of you. But there, there might be somebody tonight who as you hear Peter talking about this Jesus of Nazareth that gives life to someone, as you see Jesus of Nazareth making a difference in these people's lives, and as you hear Peter say that if you will repent and turn from your sin and yourself and turn to Christ, an amazing thing's going to happen. You're going to experience forgiveness, and you're going to experience just a refreshing, just a refreshing I mean, it can be like the air conditioning in the summer. It can be like the wood stove in the winter. I don't know where your refreshment comes from, but just think for a second about what that feels like. That, that, that sensation of just, oh, man. Do you need that tonight? To be free from that burden that you know is weighing on you? And that no matter how many times you bust through the doors of the church, it just doesn't seem to leave you? That's because you can bust through the doors of this church from now till the cows come home. And until Jesus has taken up residence in your heart and you've repented of your sins and trusted in him, it's just a religious action that's going to add more weight to that burden you're already carrying. Peter said, your religion isn't going to do it, guys. You're crippled under the weight of your sin as badly as this beggar was. And the same Jesus that healed him can take your burden of sin away and pour out the refreshing grace of his forgiveness on you 
I, oh, I just beg you tonight to trust in Christ and know that refreshment. Know that healing that comes. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come. That was Peter's bold proclamation to those who stood around him looking. But listen, here's what starts to happen in the book of Acts. And this is really the first place that it raises its head. As you begin to be bold in your witness, as you carry the gospel out there from in here, you will face opposition. You will face persecution. It was a promise of Jesus that we would face that persecution and that trouble. And this is a pattern that we're going to see, begin to see unfold in the book of Acts, the hostility that comes to that. So in the next chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, here's something else that you're going to see happen in the life of this church, and you'll see it in other churches because you see it in Acts. When you begin to take the gospel out there and reach people that have never been reached before who are very different from you, and you begin to bring them to church, hmm, things are going to get interesting. When you begin to bring people into the body, into the church, who just don't look like they fit. When you begin to bring those folks who used to be beggars, and all of a sudden you're bringing them into church. I mean, for crying out loud, there they are having their nice, reverent service there. And this man comes in walking, leaping, and praising God. I mean, if he'd been at the church where Grandpa Hageman was, he'd have gotten churched up in Watauga County. And if you don't know what being churched means, read Matthew 18. It's where you kick them out. And Grandpa got thrown out for dancing. Well, this guy would have gotten thrown out for dancing because he came into church just busting up into their service and it just wasn't what they were used to. Get used to being not used to things when you start taking the gospel out there and you see God begin to work through a spirit-filled church. I, it, I'm telling you, it'll happen. And it'll be uncomfortable. And it'll be different. And you're going to be sitting beside somebody if they have the nerve to take that seat. It's not marked or whatever, you know. I mean, I know how those things work too, you know. I wasn't born yesterday, you know. There's a pillow there. It's there for a reason. Jesus put it there for Miss Smith. And you don't sit on it, okay? I know how that works. But my point is those people are going to start coming in. And, and when that starts happening, there's going to be some issues to deal with. There's going to be some opposition, some of it from inside and some of it from outside. Now, my point, I kind of got off on a rabbit trail there. The, the Spirit of God is working through these men, through this church, and the community takes notice and religious people take notice, and religious people have no patience for the gospel. They've got no patience for it. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes, I'm in Acts 4, starting verse 5, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, that's Peter and John, they put them right in the middle of this circle. They inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. I got to stop there for just a second. Our charismatic brothers and sisters will tell us that the filling of the Holy Spirit is manifested in the speaking of tongues and supernatural utterances. That is not what the book of Acts teaches. The filling of the Spirit of God is manifested by boldness with the gospel message. You see it over and over and over. That's, that's what you see in the Bible, in the book of Acts. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Later on, the church is going to be praying for boldness and the Holy Spirit will fall out on them, come down on them, and they'll, they'll proclaim the word of God with boldness. So here, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, 
rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means that man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. What a testimony. He's standing there and just pointing to a changed life and saying, Jesus did this. For some of these folks, the last time they'd heard the name of Jesus, probably, was when they'd seen it placard on the top of a cross. And here the name of Jesus is the name that has healed this man. There's power in that name, Peter's saying, and it's by this man, by this man, the one whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then he cuts really to the heart of the issue with his religious, with his religious leaders. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So he goes back and quotes from the Psalms there and says, you are responsible. You were the ones that God had to be responsible for raising up these people and leading them in the ways of God. And you rejected the very one that God sent. It would be the means by which that would happen. You threw out this little rock thinking he was unimportant. God has made him the cornerstone. And it's by him that this man is, is being healed. But notice what he says in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the gospel message. That's the universe. Nothing could be more politically incorrect or intolerant in 2020 than to say that. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we can be saved. Jesus is the only one. Jesus is the only way, right? And that's, that's what Peter is saying there. And we'll be called arrogant. We'll be called judgmental. We will be called unloving. We will be called intolerant. And we are biblical. And we are being faithful to the gospel. And it is the most unloving thing that we can do to not say that name and to not share that truth and to not be bold with that, to not say so, to not share. I remember when I first came to Roxborough 30 years ago, I, I was introduced to what one old fellow in my church called the hardsiders. Well, he was talking about the primitive Baptist. You know, I learned a couple of things about the primitive. I'd taken a class in seminary, but I'd never really seen one in person. Um, you know, talking about what I learned to be the primitives. But I remember Walter talking to me about the, the primitive Baptist and just, you know, he said, you don't need to talk to them about their relationship to Jesus. You know, you don't talk to them about that. I, well, why not? Well, you just don't do that. Well, why not, Walter? Well, you just don't. And I learned over the years why it was discouraged in some circles to do that. Um, Peter would say, do you not love those people? Do you not love those neighbors? Do you not care? The most unloving thing we can do is not name the name of Jesus. The most uncaring thing we can do, whether it's from pride or fear or whatever, is, is to not be willing to speak the name of Jesus into a conversation. And I'm not talking about the good Lord. I'm not talking about the man upstairs. I'm not talking about whatever those 
phrases are we use when we don't say the name of Jesus. His is the name above every other name. Amen? Amen. There's no other name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved in the name of Jesus. I mean, the good Lord could be anything. Not, Not Jesus. And so, I just wanted to be sure that we're reminded of that tonight. And it says that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they saw their boldness. They saw this amazing power of the Holy Spirit. They had no clue what it was, but that's what they were seeing. And they saw the confidence they had in this resurrected Jesus, and they could, they, they could do nothing but note it. Wow, these, these, these guys, have, have, what they testify to has fruit in their lives. We cannot deny that. They might not like it. They might reject it. They will tell them not to speak that name anymore, but they could not deny the reality of it. And then seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Church, the being filled with the Holy Spirit is going to be seen in your devotion to the things of Christ, your devotion to the people of God within the fellowship of the church, your your, your generosity and your compassion, but it's all going to, also going to be seen in your boldness, your devotion, your, the filling of the Holy Spirit is going to see, be seen in, in the boldness with which we love people and with which we share Christ with people. And there's not a single one of us in this room that does that as well as we should. Not a single one of us. I know that to be the case for me. So I stand under the word tonight just as much as you do. Just being convicted of it and being once again just confronted with this. God has chosen to fill the world with his glory we saw last night. And he has chosen to do that through the church. And he has chosen to do that through the church as we love one another, serve one another, care for one another, demonstrate the gospel and how we love and serve and how we proclaim it. And he's going to do that one individual, one family, one street, one neighborhood, one community at a time. Just like yeast working its way through. And he wants to start right out here. Right out in this part of town. It's, that's that beautiful picture of it. I want to just touch on one thing before we finish. I may, need to, I may even need to finish some of this tomorrow night with a spirit-filled church is marked by faithfulness to Christ and, his, and, his, and, and the things of Christ. It's marked by, by this boldness with the gospel and it's marked by holiness. If Satan cannot cripple the work of the church with opposition from the outside, he'll make it an inside job. He'll make it an inside job. I read today about American soldiers in Afghanistan killed by an Afghan soldier wearing an allied uniform who just all of a sudden opens up his machine gun on American forces and Afghan forces. Inside jobs. They're insidious. They're effective. And our enemy knows that. And that's what the opposition begins to raise its head now in the book of Acts. The church does really well with that exterior opposition. And now it raises its head from the inside. It raises its head from the inside by a faithful couple in the church. Raises, Satan uses them on the inside of the church to try to thwart the expansion of the gospel and try to pollute the fellowship within that church through people that evidently everybody in that church knew. 
look at it with me. And I actually want to back up. Just I'm just going to read this and just let the word of God do its work. I'm going to read it and just comment on it just quickly. But in Acts chapter 4, there at the end of that chapter about the opposition that comes to Peter and John. In Acts chapter 4, we're introduced to, I believe, a man who I think had as powerful an impact on the early church through the book of Acts as anybody. And we really don't, we don't see a lot about this man named Barnabas. But I believe God used him in a mighty way in the life of Paul and in the life of this early church. Just a layman that God used in a powerful way. So we're introduced to him. Look at Acts 4, starting in verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, so that no one had any of the things that belonged to him was his own. So we're seeing the same idea about a kingdom view of what they possessed. They had everything in common. We see it again. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great is used three times in this passage. Great power, great grace, we see that. Now there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what had been sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So what the, what's going on in the life of this church is they're walking with Christ, they're walking with one another, they're sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, to the guidance of the Spirit in the life of that church. When they see a brother or sister in need, then they do what they need to do to meet that need. And they bring that and they lay it at the apostles' feet and leave the, the responsibility of distributing that up to the leadership of the church. Well, here we are. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All I'm going to say about Barnabas tonight is just that beautiful picture of someone who's sensitive to what's going on in the life of the church, submissive to the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, generous in his heart. He's held up as an example for us. Now, against that beautiful backdrop, of Barnabas comes this, I mean, it's just ugly, just throws it right in the middle. And it comes up in Acts 5. But, but a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. There's another one of those understatements. <laughs> and young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. 
And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So we have this example of Barnabas, this encouragement, this generosity, this winsome spirit about him. He's a living illustration of this great grace that is work in this church. And then we have these, I call them pretenders. Pretenders. They're pretending to be more holy than they are. They're pretending to be more generous than they are. They're pretending to be more caring than they are. Their motivation, it seems to be personal praise. I imagine that when Barnabas brought those proceeds and laid them at the feet of the apostles, the impression is given to me that it was done in a public sense, not in ostentatiousness, not trying to brag about it or bring attention to himself, but people notice. People notice when you're doing those things like that, and some people are going to notice it and wish that that was me. I'd like for somebody to pat me on the back like that. I'd like for somebody to give me some of those accolades. They were pretenders. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to talk about what it means to be a hypocrite. When you think about a hypocrite, what do you think about? I mean, the church is full of them, right? I mean, that's what they say. Church is just full of hypocrites. Well, what is a hypocrite? What is, the, what is the true definition? Our, our, our general thinking of that, well, it's a person who says one thing and does something else. But I don't believe that's what the Bible's really talking about. I, don't, I know that's not what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about a hypocrite. A person who is a hypocrite in Jesus' eyes is not necessarily someone who says one thing and does something else. A, hypocr- a hypocrite in that sense is someone who is doing one thing on the outside, but on the inside is really completely different. It's not a contrast between saying and doing. It's a contrast between doing and being. And the hypocrite who is someone who is doing something on the outside, but on the inside, is a completely different person. Literally, the word means to wear a mask, to play the part in a play, to be an actor. And Ananias and Sapphira were pretenders. Not only that, they were deceivers. Peter made it clear to both of them. Who contrived? Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but lied to God. So there were liars and there were deceivers. And as we see this unfolding, we see that this wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a miscalculation in their checkbook, okay? They didn't think they deposited this amount and wrote the check for this amount. It it wasn't that at all. They... They portrayed it as being one thing when actuality it was something else. And Peter said, why'd you do that? It was yours to start with. Nobody commanded you to do this. And when you sold it, you didn't have, you could have come and said, we really thought we might be able to give it all, but we realized that we're kind of tight right now, but we'd like to give this part of it. I don't think there'd been a problem with that at all. The problem was they were appearing to be one thing and in their heart, something else was going on completely. And we need to be really careful, church, because that's a problem with all of us. If we get right back down to it, that's the problem with all of us. Paul says there's none of us righteous, no, not one. So we need to be careful as we look at Ananias and Sapphira. They were being used by Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart? His wiles and his tactics are unchanged. And what they did 
while it was an affront to what was going on there, it was an affront to God, it grieved the Spirit of God. Why did you test God in this, Peter says? And, and the word can mean in other places, why did you grieve? You've broken God's heart here, Ananias and Sapphira. You've deceived, you've lied, you've contrived this thing. What's going on? Why did you do this? We never get a clear answer from that other than they've been used by the enemy to come and try to do an inside job in the life of this church. And the consequences were high. It was costly. And I've read articles and I've read commentaries and the question is, were these brothers, were these brothers and sisters? Were Ananias and Sapphira saved? In the sense that we would understand that. I mean, it appears they were part of the body of Christ here. It appears that they had been a part of this fellowship. And yet they come in and, they, and we see this going on. And the cost, look at the cost. It cost them their very lives. Huh. And, and I've heard guys say, well, man, aren't we glad God doesn't do that now? Amen, I am glad he doesn't do that now. So does that mean he's not taking it seriously anymore? Does that mean that it only mattered then and it doesn't matter now? That word breathed is last. The only other time you see that word used is in Acts chapter 12 when Herod took this place of austerity. He, he took this place of glory and he died and the worms ate him, it says. It's a word of judgment. And God took this very seriously here. And the angel struck down Herod then and Ananias and Sapphira are struck down here. So were they saved? I don't, I think they could have been. That's what's frightening about this. I think they could have been. If you've been around long enough, you've seen brothers and sisters make what we would call just stupid mistakes. You know, what did they do that for? Why was God so severe? This is a pivotal time in church history. This is the first time Satan's going to try to attack the church from the inside. And it's important that the church understand how seriously God takes holiness. And how seriously holiness is an impacting, act, an impacting factor in the life of the church and in the life of our witness and the life of what's going on. Let me just finish by saying, church, and I don't think you need me to remind you, but the, this passage in Acts, God is holy. And he's not to be trifled with. He's not to be trifled with. And we don't see him strike people down. Praise God for his mercy. But Paul says, this is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died in 1 Corinthians 11. The judgment of God and the discipline of God can be a fine line between those two sometimes. So I don't know if they're saved or not. That's not really the point. The point I believe that the passage of Scripture is making here is that God takes this sin seriously. He takes his church seriously. He takes his holiness seriously and our holiness seriously. And the first step for revival for many of us is just recognizing the holiness of God again and how far short of that we fall and how, un, how just unconcerned we are sometimes about these things. It was just a little white lie. It was, just a little, it was an exaggeration. They knew I really didn't mean that. God is holy. And Ananias and Sapphira lacked a healthy fear of the Lord. And the Bible tells us that that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is also the beginning of a healthy, vibrant walk with Christ. 
And how do we avoid this trap of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, we preach the gospel to ourselves and we love one another and walk with one another and, and we hold one another accountable in love and we, we just remember that it's, it's the free gift of grace that we're saved by. And he gives us these possessions to, to enjoy and to use for his glory. And we begin to hoard them and hold them tightly. We are turning it into idolatry. And Ananias and Sapphira just remind us of that. It also reminds us that God hates hypocrisy. They didn't have to sell it. They didn't have to give it. They could have kept it. None of this was necessary. So we need to be very careful in that. Just need to be very careful in that. So I want to close just by, I'm going to pray with you right now. Let's go ahead and bow our heads and close our eyes. Thank you for being attentive to a lot. <laughs> a lot of scripture, a lot of, a lot of different ideas and concepts and truths that I've shared with you tonight. Let me just press upon our hearts that the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's people and in the life of his church is manifested by our faithfulness, our devotion to Jesus and the things of Christ, his word, his people. Check your heart tonight. Holy Spirit, check our hearts tonight. Lord, show us if we're playing games. Show us if we're just going through the routine. Show us if we're here tonight for fear of man and afraid of what someone might say if they knew we had skipped out. Secondly, God, just remind us tonight that the filling of your Holy Spirit, the fullness of your church filled with your Holy Spirit, Lord, is seen in our, God, in our boldness to share your word, to share the name of Jesus, in the boldness to love people, but though they're different from us, they smell bad. They look different. God, help us to be bold to love as Christ loved, to proclaim as these apostles did. And finally, Lord, you are holy. The angels proclaimed your holiness. Out of reverence for you, they covered their eyes and they covered their feet. Or the Old Testament Israelites wouldn't even proclaim your name for fear of blasphemy in some, some way. God, we see your holiness when we see Jesus on the cross. We see the weightiness and the awfulness of our sins when we see him bleeding and suffering and dying in our place. Forgive us for taking that for granted. Forgive us, God, for taking you lightly. Fill us with the holy fear of you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Ben will be down front to pray with you. I'd encourage you to come up here and Kneel before the Lord and pray tonight if he's uh, convicted your heart or impressed something upon your mind. Let's stand as we sing and close out tonight. Come now, count of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above praise the mount I'm filled
Bye.